Please turn with me in your copy of the scriptures to the Gospel of John in the first chapter. The title of the message this morning is Jesus, Peter's Rock. And we continue, actually, we begin this segment of our series, In Their Shoes. I hear from your hearts this morning by your fervent and sincere worship that you want to see Jesus. This is the desire of every disciple of Christ. Our desire in this sermon series really is to look through the eyes of the faithful testimony that's been given to us in the scriptures of the disciples of who Jesus is. We want to see Jesus. We want to check what we know about Jesus against the record of the testimony about who he was. We don't want to come up with our own version of Jesus. That would be very dangerous. and It's done too often, not only practically in our lives, but also uh, from a doctrinal or a theological point of view in many fellowships of people around the world. But we want to see Jesus through the lens of the, the word of God that's being delivered to us. And so for that reason, we are unapologetic in coming back to the scriptures again this morning and diving in and looking at this description of Christ given through the life of Peter. So often, if you've heard messages delivered on the life of Peter, you'll hear a lot about Peter in the sermon. Our desire is even though you may hear the name Peter or Cephas or Simon in the message this morning, our desire is that really what we hear and what we see is Jesus Christ. I think that's your desire as, as you are here as a faithful follower of Christ this morning. My prayer as I worked and, and labored through the word and preparing this message this morning was that we would really behold Christ in a way that changes us this morning. I believe that every single one of us here this morning under the hearing of the word of God needs drastic change, not just little bitty incremental change, but we need to be changed and transformed by the mighty grace of God. Maybe you came today not prepared for a dramatic change in your life. That's okay. God is able to do significant things in our lives and often does so without our permission or our planning. And so we join together in the word this morning, and in John chapter 1, we begin in verse number 40, hearing of the first disciples called to Christ. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Thus says the word of God this morning. Would you pray with me? It's no sweeter name than the name Jesus. It almost be a one word verse that we sing throughout all of heaven, Jesus. We can't say it enough. We can't praise you enough. We haven't found the depths or the height or the breadth of Jesus yet. Oh, how all-consuming it is to know this one for ourselves. Father, our first prayer as the gathered body this morning is that every person who is in, in this room knows Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior. 
And certainly the prayer of every disciple is that we would draw closer to Jesus being transformed into his image. We, we are tired of ourselves. We want to look like him. Father, you promise when the word of God is preached that you do a mysterious and eternal work in the hearts through the preaching of Christ. Would you do that which we could not even imagine to ask or think through the power of the word of God this morning? Remove from this room and from our hearts, from our minds, all distraction. Everything that would seek to rob our attention from the life-giving word of God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When we meet Peter, he is meeting Jesus. And right away, the Lord gives him a new name. It's a really interesting interaction that we read here in John's account. It seems out of place, striking, and, and might rob a person to, that they would be a, a bit presumptuous. Imagine meeting someone for yourself, and as you're interacting with them, they look you in the eyes and they say, I'm going to call you something else. How does that rub you? When Peter meets Jesus, the Lord, the Lord re- renames him from Simon to Peter. It's helpful if we at least learn what Simon means so we can understand what is the significance of this name change. Well, Simon is a form of the old Hebrew name Simeon, we find in our Bibles. The first time we hear the name Simeon is in the first book of the Bible. We're introduced to this name right off the bat in the reading of our Bibles. When we read the names of the sons of Jacob in Genesis 29, and specifically in verse 33, we find the name Simeon. And after we meet Jacob's sons, we follow them into really a story of their life that is um, not a story that you want written about your life. It's a horrible story. Soon after we meet Simeon, we meet him, we we find a a horrible episode just several chapters later in Genesis 34 where where the the sons of Jacob have seen their, their sister, Jacob's daughter Dinah, be horribly defiled in a in a situation of rape by the townspeople, the Hivites, in a town called Hamor. Well, Jacob's sons, including Simeon, take up their own arms and their schemes, and without getting too graphic, they, they, actually, um, they actually put it in their mind to slaughter every male in this city to pay for what has been done to their sister. It's a terrible and tragic story of vengeance and man taking blood and justice into his own hands. Later we'll see Simeon, who would be complicit in deceiving his father Jacob and selling his younger brother Joseph into slavery into Egypt. Simon, or Simeon, means one who, he, who has heard God, one who hears God. That's the meaning of the name Simon, Simon Peter, or Simeon. It's a very special name, but it appears that Jesus wanted to take this one whose name means one who hears God and change him into one who would be used of God so that others would hear of God too. And he would take him through significant challenges and opposition, and he would name him Rock. So one who hears from God to Rock, the Rock. 
Cephas is the same as the name Peter. Cephas is Aramaic and Peter is the Hebrew form, but both mean a stone or a rock. Peter is mentioned second most in all of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The most popular name, of course, in the Gospels is Jesus, but the second most populated name in these Gospel writings is the name Peter. We become very familiar with this first of the disciples and all of the lists of the disciples. He's listed first as not only a a grammatical signal, but also sort of a signal that that Peter was stepping out and seemed to be some sort of a, a ringleader of the disciples. He was in the close company of Christ among the three that Jesus drew close to himself, but also demonstrated some sort of leadership among the 12 that Jesus had appointed. But in this renaming, there's a very obvious word picture being played out in this meeting that Jesus is having in John 1. And it is prophetic. And I think we're, we're alerted to that in its very nature. Peter would forever be changed by this meeting of Christ on that day. And we are blessed to follow his life as the Lord begins to make a rock, a substantial and immovable object out of one who listened to the voice of God. That's Jesus' desire for his disciples. What's your name? What does that mean? Well, Jesus' purpose and intent in your life is to take you as one who hears from God and to make you into a rock. And joyfully, And sometimes agonizingly, we get to see what's going on in your life as he goes through the process of sanctification in your lives, where it doesn't always look pretty, like when we follow Peter's journey of going from one who has heard from God to being the rock, and we hear so many of the faithful accounts in his life. But Jesus' desire, his purpose, is to transform his followers to not only be ones who listen to the voice of God, but to be a people of significant substance and substantial strength, power, and stability. To put it in short and in brief, God desires to make every disciple into a rock. God desires to make a rock out of you. And this morning, we're going to look at three truths through the eyes of Peter that inform us how Jesus disciples disciples. A verb and a noun. How does Jesus disciple you? How does Jesus disciple disciples? Every one of these truths should be an active part of our, of our lives. Number one, the growing disciple of Christ experiences many self-contradictions, but that doesn't mean they're not growing. The growing disciple of Christ experiences many self-contradictions, but that doesn't mean progress isn't being made. Do you ever feel on a rainy day in your life, in your soul, and, and in the climate, do you ever feel like you're just one big contradiction? Like you could barely have the same opinion about something twice. You could barely feel the same way about something twice. But even in your confession of Christ, even in your zeal of living Christ out in your lives, you you find yourself hot and fervent unto praise and thankfulness unto God, and then wallowing deeply in the mire of, does God even care about me? Or pursuing your own interests? 
I mean, you know that if someone were to follow you and watch you, that they might not be convinced that you're fully devoted to follow the risen Christ. If they were really to enter into the privacy of our lives, would they, would they really be convinced that you are a dedicated disciple? Do you ever catch yourself in the Spirit's conviction doing, thinking, or saying something that is not becoming of a disciple of Christ? When we follow the Apostle Peter's transformation through the gospel writings, we find no better example of self-contradiction and rescuing assurance of Christ than in Peter's life. So many Christians identify with Peter. I was just talking with someone last evening, and I I said something about I was preaching on the life of of Christ through the eyes of Peter, and they said, I I love Peter. I love hearing about him. I, I feel like I'm a Peter. Raise your hand if you've ever thought that. I feel like you're a Peter. Some of you are Peters and you're not raising your hand. I'll tell you who you are afterwards. We'll take the offering first, though. But I think we probably, all of us can identify with this vacillating and self-contradicting nature of Peter when we really look into his life. And so many Christians identify with them. The reason is that we recognize that there's a big gap. The reason why we all feel like we have a lot in common with Peter is because we know there's a big gap between who we are and who we want to be. We know we've got a lot of progress to make, and we feel like we're, we're, we're up, and, up and down, constantly back and forth. And then often we are sure that we will never be who God wants us to be because of who we are today. We're sure of it. We're sure that God is not going to make a a faithful disciple out of us because we have failed far too many times and in far greater ways. Well, let's look together at several instances, and you're going to be turning in our Bibles together with me at these instances to just draw these to the front of your mind so that we can use them to learn from in the apparent contradictions of Peter's nature. Some of them come readily to mind. We'll walk right through them. But keep in mind as we survey these contradictions to Peter's nature that Peter has been selected by Jesus following an all-night conversation with the Father. Jesus knew what he was getting into when he rescued Peter, when he saved Peter. Jesus knows what he's getting into when he heard your confession and received you unto himself, forgiving you with his saving mercies of your sin. Jesus knew the work, the piece of work you were going to be. He knew. And he still saved you. While Peter had been drawn in close, he had the privileged and trusted position next to the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God himself, and yet experienced these these contradictions in his nature. Turn with me first to Luke chapter 5. We'll read these without comment because I just want to create a little bit of a list and a survey in your mind of these contradictions, these apparent contradictions. Luke chapter 5 and verse number 4. And when Jesus had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let your nets Let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. 
And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled the boats. So they both began to sink. And when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees. Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. In Peter's nature here, we find this, stay away from me. I, I just, I've just demonstrated to you that I'm not believing you. I am not worthy to be in your presence. Leave me. John chapter 6, Jesus has fed the multitude and has said that he is the bread of life, which is an incredible offense to the people because he clarifies it by saying that that he is, he is better than the bread that had come down with Moses in the wilderness, that he is the bread and that everybody must take of him in a greater way than they took in the wilderness because only in him will they have eternal life. And in John chapter 6, towards the end of the passage, all of the crowds have left because their hearts were smitten and convicted by this, by this statement of Christ. And in verse number 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. We find here he's saying in Luke 5, the drought of fish, leave me. But in John 6, he's saying, I'm not leaving you. In Matthew chapter 16, turn with me there. Jesus is ministering in Caesarea. In Matthew chapter 16, in verse number 13, Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi. He asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Here we find Peter just exclaiming, declaring he is, he is the one. He is the true God. In Mark chapter 8, in Mark chapter 8, verse 32, verse 31, Jesus is saying that he is soon going to be crucified, that he'll be buried, and that he'll rise again. 31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter. And said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Here we find Peter in Matthew 16. Jesus says, says I'm going I'm to build my church with confessors like you, so the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And then in the prophecy of his crucifixion and resurrection, Peter says, oh no, you're, you're not dying. And Jesus says, get behind me, 
as of the one who has come from hell itself, Satan. In Matthew chapter 26, Jesus is communing with the Father and agonizing over the imminent arrest, trial, and his crucifixion. He has brought the disciples into the Garden of Gethsemane, and he even brought then the the smaller group of three, Peter, James, and John, into a a smaller prayer meeting and and prays with them and stays with them for a minute and then leaves them to go by himself and commune with the Father. But in Matthew 26, verse 36, And Jesus went in with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to the disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even unto death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he, he fell on his face and prayed, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So you could not watch with me one hour. He says it to Peter. These contrasts. You are the Christ. Oh, I'm with you. I mean, if they're going to take you, they're going to have to get through me. We have that fervency, that, that hot worship and zeal for the Lord. And, and then, like in the next moment, we're giving God advice. In the next moment, we're telling God how he ought to work. We're telling him how salvation works. Or even in the next moment, we're just asleep. These contrasts are in our hearts. It's like we live both in heaven and in hell, if you will, in our vacillating belief in Christ. Our hearts really validate Peter's experience. We share in Peter's zeal and we, we share in his excitement for Christ like, like on the Mount of Transfiguration, but we also share in Peter's shame. This is part of our experience. Our, our hearts then validate Peter's experience because we repeat his story almost on a daily basis and that's why we say, I'm a Peter. But that ought to drive us in one direction, that admission, that confession, It ought to drive us in one direction, that's towards Jesus Christ. Like Peter, we need the humility of confession to draw close to Christ, no matter our incredible and very obvious failures and disobedience. That's what qualifies you to come to Christ, is that you're a Peter. You're a denier, apathetic, sleepy, Christ counselor, rebuker, rebel, blasphemer at heart. And that's why you could come to Jesus. And Jesus knew you would be like that when when he called you to be his disciple. He knew what he was getting into. There are times when I get an idea of trying to save money and I try to work on my car. 
and the cars I tend to own have rusty bolts. There's nothing that brings me closer to God than rusty bolts or drives me further away. And I get into it and I wonder, what, what have I gotten myself into? At this point, I can't get this thing towed to the garage. I've got to keep my image in front of my wife like I can fix things. I've told the boys I'm going to fix the car, come watch. Everything's on the line. And I'm getting into it, and I'm starting to regret it. There's not one split second in your salvation and your life with God when God regrets the grace that he has imparted to you. It has never crossed God's mind that he can't complete the work that he's begun in you. Disciple of Christ, you have got to plant that truth way deep down because it's the foundation of your confidence. Your confidence lies not in your faithfulness, but in his. Listen, Peter's a rock. But who's Peter's rock? There will be change in the disciples' life despite the contradictions despite the self-contradictions going on in the disciples' life, because true disciples of Christ will indeed vacillate between successfully following Jesus and dismally failing, dismally failing to obey him. There will be contradictions in the disciples' life. But one of the marks of the true disciple of Christ is that there is a struggle I loved working with, with youth, especially for the first 10 years of my ministry as I was a youth minister. And one of the things that excited me about working with young people is that I knew what they were thinking because they wore it. And the parents, we would weep together at the, the choices that they would make and the, the way in which our hearts would be broken uh, often in their lives as they would stumble and fall and, and, and be restored and those things. But one of the things that I would tell the church and that I would encourage my pastor and also the parents with is, is at least we can see the struggle. But I'm really concerned when I can't see the struggle. And by the way, I would say now ministering more to grown-ups and adults like I do today, it is far more difficult to minister. You say, well, I don't know if you could ever get me to minister to teenagers I just don't even know how. Let me, let me tell you, from my experience, I think it is 10 times harder to minister to adults because we don't wear it. We hide it. And so it's very difficult to sense the struggle. Anyways, off on the subjects. But one of the marks of the true disciple of Christ is that there is a struggle. But the second truth is that there is Progress. The growing disciple of Jesus Christ will bear marks of change that demonstrate progress towards greater devotion in Christ. They will bear marks. You will bear fruit. You may not see it. I think you should, by the way. 
I think that fruit that's produced by the glory of Christ and the Spirit's work in your heart should be something that you are cognizant of, not in a self-righteous way, but in a way of saying, God, look what has grown through me. I give it to you in praise of your glory. It is not of me. My boasting is not of me, but all of you. And what others have seen in me, and maybe I've heard someone testify and encourage me in some way of what they've seen in me, Lord, I lift that up to you. It is all of you, because I'm just Peter. But there are changes in Peter. And I wonder, as I was looking at this passage in John 1 and verse 42, where Jesus encounters Peter and names him, I I wonder, did the prophetic naming of Peter as the rock speak not only of Peter's eventual growth in the faith, but did it not also speak of Christ's power and his restoration to make him into a rock? If we come to John 1.42 and we say, that's the hero of the faith. He's a rock. You missed it. Because Jesus is speaking of his power into making someone like Peter into a rock. It's speaking of Jesus. He's the hero of the faith. So this has a prophetic undertone to it. Peter looks nothing like a rock. Depart from me, Lord, I am not worthy of you. Don't say you're going to die. Don't say you're going to fulfill the plan of God on a cross. That doesn't sound rock-like. But Jesus is changing it. What's going on in your life that doesn't look like a rock? But Jesus is changing you. You say, I I don't know that this privileged position of being a a child of God, a a son, a daughter of God, if if I have what it takes, if I have enough fortitude, if I have enough devotion, if I have enough determination, Jesus says you don't. You getting there isn't determined by your determination, by your diligence. You getting there is not dependent upon your performance. It's built upon his prophecy of those whom he has called, he also glorifies. All the pressure for the conformity of Christ in your life lays on the shoulders of Jesus Christ who says, I will make you a son of God. All the pressure is there. And Jesus says to us who are fickle deniers, sometimes bowing to the Lord and sometimes running from the Lord. He says to us, like you said to Peter, you shall become a rock. This hand that made Peter a rock is at work shaping us to be pillars in the temple of God. Did we not read about that in the churches in Revelation 2 and 3? This was not only a prophetic undertone to you will be called rock from now on, but it was also a very loving expression of Christ towards Peter. Because in Acts chapter 2, Peter comes onto the stage. Go with me, please, to... Luke's account here in Acts chapter 2. Peter, who has just 40 days prior, 50 days prior, he has just 
been hiding, trembling, cursing God around a fire, hearing the cock crow. He sticks his neck out in front of the very ones who were chanting that Jesus ought to be crucified. In Acts chapter 2, verse 14, Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. And he preaches that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. In Galatians chapter 2, we won't be turning there, but but we find that Peter does something shameful. He withdrew from the Gentiles in Antioch because he was afraid of how the Jews were taking his ministry and the misunderstandings there. And so he was pretending like he didn't even know what God was doing among the Gentile believers. And he was hotly scorned by the Apostle Paul in Jerusalem later on. Later, according to tradition, Peter died in Rome confessing Christ as the Lord and Savior. And he told them, do not, do not crucify me like my Lord. I'm not worthy. And he asked that he would be crucified upside down. But see, devoted disciples don't become more numb to the conviction of sin in their lives. In fact, disciples, growing disciples, become more sensitive about that gap that lies between them and Christ's likeness. They become increasingly aware of how much they are in need of the forgiveness of Christ. They become mindful of how sinful they are and how forgiving Christ is. Forgiveness of Christ becomes the foundation for their devotion and and a means of success in following him. You want to know where to start or restart in growing in your walk with Jesus Christ. It begins by coming to Christ and renewing fellowship with him by seeking his forgiveness. And listen, it ends there too. Forgiveness is the A to Z of the foundation of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. So thirdly, the growing disciple of Jesus Christ increases in his awareness of how sinful he is, but how forgiving Jesus is. Maybe you have a a Christian in mind. Maybe you know some Christian where you just feel like, man, they, they just are so perfect. They're so good. They're so righteous. They're so holy. Well, the foundation of a true and growing disciple of Jesus Christ is simply that the one who you esteem and who may very well be a, a good and faithful follower of Jesus Christ has become more aware of their need for Jesus' forgiveness. And that has become the key for their maturity in Christ. Not less. Not less aware of their sinfulness. Not numb to the Spirit's conviction not shoving things off to the side, or maybe they just sin less. None of that, really. And finally, I'd like for us to land in Matthew chapter 18. In Matthew chapter 18, we see really what I would like to suggest is the overarching theme of 
the interaction of Peter with Jesus Christ. How did he become a rock? And it deals in this theme of his not being able to to get away from his need for forgiveness. In Matthew 18 and verse number 21, then Peter came up and said to Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. 77 times. It is the idea of infinity. Listen, if Jesus had adopted Peter's idea of the terms of forgiveness, Peter would have never seen the Lord Jesus in heaven himself. And listen, if Jesus adopts your theology, if Jesus lives according to your rules, if Jesus is who you think he is instead of who he really is, you and I are lost forever. Let Jesus shape your theology. Let Jesus shape your image of who he is and let Jesus disciple you and it begins and it ends with this, that he is one who will keep forgiving you and has already forgiven you. Peter needed every bit of the 77 or the 70 times seven. Peter is the testimony to us of Jesus' patient and pardoning love. He's the testimony. You say, I'm just a dismal failure. I'm the worst disciple. Maybe you are. Peter was too. Born in 1735, the story goes, that a 17-year-old Robert Robinson ran the streets of London in gangs, caring not for anything spiritual. He was just a small boy, and his dad had died. And in 18th century England, there was little in the way of social welfare, and so this meant that he had to go to work even though he was just a young boy. Without a father now to guide him in his life and to study him, he fell into a bad company of friends. One day, Robert Robinson and his gang of of rabble-risers harassed a drunken gypsy. And pouring liquor into her, they demanded that she tell their fortunes for free. When it came to Robert, she pointed her finger and told him that he would live to see his children and grandchildren. Well, this actually hit a tender spot in his heart. And he records later on in his life, he records that what he was thinking is, if I'm going to live to see my children and grandchildren, then I need to change the way I'm living. I can't keep going on like I'm going on now. A few nights later, Robert Robinson was in half seriousness and half fun, decided to go to a tent meeting to hear the Methodist preacher George Whitfield. And to cover his weak urge of curiosity, he suggested to the boys that he had been hanging around that they would heckle the preacher at this meeting. He records that he had said, let's go laugh at this deluded Methodist. 
Well, Whitfield preached out of Matthew 3, 7. O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Robert's countenance changed, and he left that meeting in dread and under a deep sense that he was the only one at the tent meeting that George Whitfield was preaching to. Finally, several years later, after dealing and wrestling through this time of conviction, Robert made peace with God, and he immediately set out to become a preacher like George Whitfield himself. He actually wrote George Whitfield a letter and told him that he envied his happiness that he saw on the faces of the people in the tent that day. And two years into his early pastorate years in 1757, Robert Robinson wrote the hymn that we sang this morning, Come Thou Fount. I'll read for you the words again. Come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melodious sonnet sung by flaming tongues above. Praise the mount I am fixed upon it, mount of God's unchanging love. Here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I'm come. And I hope, by thy good pleasure, safely to arrive at home. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God. He, to rescue me from danger, interposed his precious blood. O to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let that grace, now like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Sadly, years later, Robert did wander away from the Lord. And in his spiritually backslidden condition, he found himself one day traveling in a stagecoach. The only other person inside this stagecoach was a young woman who he did not know. And she didn't know who he was. But she quoted to him some words that she had heard recently. She quoted to him the words of, Come thou fount of every blessing. And she told him what an encouragement that song had been to her. He couldn't get her to change the subject as he squirmed and sat in the stagecoach. But she continued to press into the conversation and she asked him what he thought of the hymn that she was humming. And he says later on that he told her, Madam, I am the poor unhappy man who wrote that hymn many years ago. And I would give a thousand worlds if I had them, to enjoy the feelings that I had then. She mustered up a reply and said, Sir, the streams of mercy are still flowing. He was deeply touched. And as a result of that encounter, his fellowship with the Lord was restored, and he continued on in the pastorate ministry, calling many sinners to repentance because of Christ's willingness 
when Jesus had risen and he gathered his disciples around him, he came to Peter, according to John 21. He knew that Peter would need to be restored. He knew that Peter would need assurance. This one who had denied him, not once or twice, but three times as the lashes were laid on the back of Jesus. It is when Jesus calls to Peter in John 21 that we're reminded that Jesus restores rocks. That's actually when the rocks are made, is in the restoring. Jesus told Peter, you will someday die for me. But what is that for you to know? Follow me today. Where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Where sin abounds in your life, grace much more abounds. Listen, Jesus is not able to be weary in forgiveness. You cannot wear Jesus out. Streams of mercy are still flowing. Jesus' heart can only love the ones whom he has embraced and called his own. Jesus is a master at restoration. It's what he went to the cross for. It's not a side gig and not a side hobby of Christ to work on changing unstable, unfaithful people's lives. It's not what he just occupies his time when he's not spinning the planets and working on the good people. It's what Jesus gave himself on the cross for, to restore those who have heard from God into people who are the rock. In conclusion, I want to ask you two questions this morning to think on. I wonder this morning if you're in need of the restoring forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Have you been wandering away from Christ because you doubt his eagerness to be restored unto you? Have you doubted his eagerness to forgive you? Have you thought that he could only forgive you seven times? Today is the day to make peace with God by humbling yourself to admit to God how much of a failure you are and believe upon his forgiving mercies. How long has it been that you have been away from God? It doesn't really matter. He's ready to receive you into the closeness of his fellowship. But the question we're asking this morning is, what is holding you back? Because it cannot be his readiness to receive you. The next question is, don't be disabled by the contradictions in your life. Don't be paralyzed by the fact that you, like Peter, vacillate between life in heaven and life in hell. That with the same mouth you bless and you curse. 
So many times we as believers wonder how God could use people like us to do his holy work. We wonder, how could you use me? I'm not at the front of the line. And I'm not actually even stepping out right now as a volunteer. How could you use me? But that's the point. That's actually the point. If God had to wait until you arrived, until you and I arrived to do to do his work through us here on earth, he would have to wait till we got to heaven. But he's not going to wait to use you. He's not going to wait to change you. God doesn't use perfect people because there aren't any. But he does use changing people. And in both the using and the changing God glorifies the work of his son, Jesus Christ. It is then that Jesus is at work in us and through us. You see, it's all about Jesus. It's not about us. It's not about Peter. Let's pray this morning.